Yeah. Okay. So go to our website, sign up. Um, my wife and I and our kids and our life group and a bunch of the kids in our life group, we're going to be at Happy Hollow Zoo. I think my kids think they're just going to Happy Hollow Zoo <laughs> to have a good day, and they're in for a rude awakening. Um, but it's, I'm telling you, if you've never served in Beautiful Day, yes, it has an impact on our city. But what I've seen most is it changes us. It changes us into a people who um, slowly over time we become unshackled from the sort of self-centeredness that is so pervasive in our culture. And we begin to become a people of love, um, not just toward those who are near, but toward our entire city. So uh, join us for a beautiful day. Go to our website, sign up. Maybe get together with your life group if you're in a life group and sign up for a project together. It's going to be awesome. Okay, let's pray and then let's dive into God's word together. God, we come to you now with, uh, just like that song so beautifully reminded us with um, our brokenness, but um, we give it to you anyways as our hallelujah, as a broken song of praise. And as we delve into um, some difficult ideas this morning, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts and minds and that you would do whatever it is you need to do whether that's to convict us or to comfort us or something in between. Have your way through your word. I pray these things in the name of your risen son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me show you an image here. This is an artist's rendering of a true story. This is not going to, it's going to feel like a fake story, like some James Bond movie. But in the very early 19th century, in the year 1808, there were two men in France, Mr. De Grand Prix and Mr. De Pique. And these two men had a problem. They were both in love with the same woman, uh, Miss Tirave. And um, Miss Tirave could not make up her mind. She was like, De Grand Prix, De Pique, they're both awesome. Uh, can I have them both? And these men were like, no, you can't have us both. So what we need to do is we need to eliminate one man. <laughs> so this is a true story. So Mr. De Grand Prix and Mr. De Pique, they challenge each other to a duel to the death. Now that sounds so barbaric to us. This is 1808, so it's not that long ago. And it's in France, sophisticated, right? High intellect, all of that in France. De Pique and De Grand Prix, they challenge each other to a duel to the death, which was very common at that time uh, as a way of, um, you know, settling disputes. But De Grand Prix and De Pique, they were both men who considered themselves the social elite of society. So they decided, let's not just have an average normal duel where we shoot each other with guns. Let's go up in hot air balloons and let's battle each other in the sky and invite our city to watch. They wanted to create a spectacle. This is a true story. It's like, sounds fake. It's a true story. Look it up. So on May 3rd, 1808, De Grand Prix and De Pique get into their hot air balloons. They elevate over 1,000 feet into the sky, and they pull out their pistols, and this is the image. They start shooting each other. And at one point, Mr. De Pique shoots, and he punctures De Grand Prix's balloon. The balloon tips over. De Grand Prix falls out and plummets to his death. And De Pique wins Mademoiselle Tiravie. 
and and then their relationship didn't make it. <laughs> they, got a, they got a divorce. Some of you know uh, the classic book, The Count of Monte Cristo. Anybody ever read all of The Count of Monte Cristo? Wow, well done. It's a long, long book. How many of you have seen the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo? Many more hands. America, everybody. Where we do not read, we watch. Okay, I'm just kidding. It's a great movie. I haven't read the book either. No, no shame, no hate. Uh, the author, Alexander Dumas, he um, has this beautiful line where he's writing. It's not beautiful. It, it is beautiful in some ways, but it's, it's heartbreaking too. And in the story, he um, puts these words in the mouths of the protagonist, who you would consider the protagonist, Edmond Dantes. And Edmond Dantes, if you know the story, Count of Monte Cristo, he's a man that is just ravaged with a desire for revenge. And this is what he says in The Count of Monte Cristo. He says, I who have also been betrayed, assassinated, and cast into a tomb. I have emerged from the tomb by the grace of God, and I owe it to God to take my revenge. He has sent me for that purpose. I mean, this is a beautiful line because it is like in, in one or two sentences, you can, you can feel the anguish in this man who has been so wronged, and if you know the Count of Monte Cristo story, he, he was certainly wronged. I mean, it's justifiable for him to feel the way he feels. But it's interesting because he deifies his desire for revenge. It's like, man, God has sent me for this purpose. It is the grace of God by which I have emerged from seeming death, and I owe it to God to take my revenge. When we are wronged, however significant or slight the wrong may be, this is maybe not this extreme, but the reality is I think we would all admit, we too can often be overcome by this desire for revenge or for vengeance. And in our worst moments, just like the Count of Monte Cristo, we are tempted to deify our desire, right? To project the approval of God on our vengeful desire. It's like they have wronged me so bad and I don't think God's going to hold it against me if I get them back. That's the fair thing to do, right? We're tempted to do this. Matthew chapter 18. The disciples and Jesus are having a conversation. And then Peter, one of the disciples, came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me or who wrongs me, who harms me, who hurts me? How many times should I forgive them? And then Peter says this line. He says, should it be up to seven times? Now, just a point of reference here. At the time of Jesus in the first century Jewish world, the Jewish rabbis were very fond of telling their students, you should forgive a wrongdoer up to three times. That was a common sort of teaching amongst Jewish rabbis. So what is Peter doing here? Peter thinks, he thinks that he is going to Jesus and basically he's assuming that his assertion of forgiving someone seven times is like super generous. He's going to Jesus and he's like, listen, I know all the rabbis are like forgive three times, but I know what I'm gonna do. I'm going to go to my rabbi, and I'm going to be like, Jesus, what do you say? How many times do you think we should forgive? I don't know, maybe seven times, three times two plus one, right? Like, that's what he's doing. He thinks he's awesome. And Jesus blows this assumption out of the water. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered, listen, 
Not seven times, 77 times. So let's ask a question. Does Jesus literally mean you must forgive 77 times? Like, should we all have a Google spreadsheet where every time someone wrongs us, we have those little, you know, the columns, and it goes all the way to 77. It's like so-and-so at work said that thing, or they took credit where really credit was due to me. They really wronged me. I'm hurt by them. <sighs> I forgive them. Check. And you just go 76 more times. And then after 77, you're like, all right, I'm done. Thank you, Lord. I hate them, right? Like <laughs> revenge, vengeance. Is that what Jesus means? Literally 77. No, of course not. So what's happening here? There's two places in the Bible, only two, where the numbers 7 and 77 show up together. The second place is right here, obviously. The first place is on page 4 of the Bible. It's like way, way back. Uh, let me read it to you. Genesis 4, um, verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, me, 77 times. So first, before we unpack this, what is Jesus doing? When Jesus says, no, Peter, you shouldn't forgive seven times, you gotta forgive 77 times. He's not saying 77 literally. What he is doing is he is going all the way back to the Genesis story and he is reversing an idea that had been so destructive to humans over the course of history. So what's happening in this Genesis story? Who is Lamech? Lamech is the great, great, great grandson of a man named Cain. And you may know the name Cain because Cain is the son, one of the sons of the first humans in the biblical story, Adam and Eve. And what is Cain's story? Many of you know this. Cain has a younger brother named Abel. We talked about this briefly last Sunday, actually. Cain has a younger brother named Abel, and he thinks Abel is greater in God's eyes than he is. So what does Cain do? Cain murders his own brother. I mean, does it get any more wrong than that? That is the worst thing you could do to another human. God sees Cain's atrocity, and God says to Cain, you've done evil. I am going to banish you to wander the planet for the rest of your life. And Cain says, I, that's too much, which makes no sense. You just killed your brother. Wandering the earth is mercy. If we want to talk about fairness, what God should do is end your life. And yet God is showing you mercy. He is banishing you as punishment to wander the earth. And Cain says, I can't do this because if I wander the earth, somebody's gonna kill me, God. My life is under threat, which is actually equitable considering what he's done. But what does God do? God shows Cain mercy. He, he grants Cain protection. Genesis 4, 15. The Lord said to him, to Cain, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So the word vengeance is in God's sort of mercy to Cain. But this isn't a statement about vengeance, is it? This is about mercy on Cain. Cain, who has murdered his brother, is now banished to wander the earth. Cain says, I can't do this. People are going to kill me. 
And God says, I will protect you. Even though you did not protect your brother, I will protect you. This is mercy. And so God says, if anybody tries to touch this man, if anyone kills Cain, I will lord it over them seven times over. That's the language. And then Cain's great, great, great grandson sings this song about his great, great, great grandfather. And he takes, Lamech takes God's promise of mercy on Cain's life and he distorts it and boasts not of mercy, but of vengeance. Do you see what's happening? Again, the song. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, me, I, will be avenged 77 times. He reverses God's mercy into vengeance. Vengeance is the distorted pursuit of self-defined fairness. And it is self-defined. I mean, what does Lamech say? He says, I have killed a man for what? For wounding me. Is that fair? No. But it is to Lamech. And he boasts about it. You know, uh, when my kids, Harper and Simon, who are eight and five, you know, they get along great about 60% of the time. But the other 40%, it gets really bad, you know. And my son especially, he can be really rough with his sister. And so what will often happen is when my son gets very frustrated, he'll get very physical with his older sister. He'll start pushing her. Sometimes he'll, like, swing and try to hit her. And as I'm painting a bad, my son is a sweet, sweet kid. This is just like every now and then. Um, and, uh, and then his sister, who is not very physical, what does she do? She runs to mom or dad, and one of the first things she'll say is like, Simon did X, Y, and Z. And then she will start talking about fairness. Because she is not physical, she doesn't necessarily hit him or push him but she is seeking something, right? Because this is not equitable. He pushed me. I'm not the pushing type, but mom, dad, I need something. And essentially what she's asking for is like, you punish him. You make this fair. You make this equitable. This is in all of us. Now I wanna make a point clear. And we'll, we'll get more into this in a second, but, but because I don't want to um, miscast what is happening here about forgiveness, I want you to know vengeance is very different than biblical justice. What I am not saying is that followers of Jesus need to just let things lie. When wrongdoing occurs, we just kind of always turn the other cheek and say like, yeah, no. I mean, the Bible is very clear about seeking justice, but here's the difference. Justice, at the end of the day, It acknowledges and confronts wrongdoing for sure, but it does it with a desire to seek union, connection, harmony, equity, and flourishing for all. This is justice. But vengeance at its core is simply a desire to control and to conquer. It's not looking for equity. It doesn't desire flourishing for all. When Harper comes to me and says, Mom, Dad, Um, Simon hit me, you need to make this right. She's not thinking to herself because you need to teach him how to be a fully formed human so that he can flourish and thrive as he grows into childhood and adulthood, mom. This is what's best for him. That's not what Harper's thinking. She's just like, he hurt me, can you please hurt him? I need to conquer 
what the, the situation, what's happening here. That's the difference between vengeance and justice. So I want to ask you a question. Have we veiled any of us? Have we veiled in any way a dangerous desire for vengeance with the language of justice and equity in any way in our lives, in our relationships right now? Have you done that? In a room this size with this many people, folks watching online in the theater, it's very possible that many of us have done that or are doing that. So here's a clarifying question. Think about, think about a wrongdoing in your life, somebody that has wronged you or a situation in which you feel wronged, and ask yourself this question. As I work toward righting this wrong, can I simultaneously desire the long-term best for the wrongdoer? Can you do that? Listen, let me admit to you, this is not easy. I'm not putting this up here because it's like, oh, I do this all the time. Anytime people wrong me, I'm like, I desire the best for you. Like, no, my initial reaction is fairness. You hurt me, I want to hurt you. I'm simply saying this question can become a helpful paradigm. Big picture. Can I slowly over time become the sort of person that can actually begin to desire the long-term good for those who have wronged me? Lewis Smedes, in a fantastic book, he says, you will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and feel the power, the power to wish them well. The person who can wish good things for one who has harmed them, that is the person with power in the interaction. Don't ever think that the wrongdoer holds the power. It is the person who has been wronged and yet has the wherewithal and the disposition to do two things. One, to seek justice, to confront the wrong, and to do everything in their power to eradicate the wrong, and at the same time, to desire good for the wrongdoer, that's power. Well, what does Jesus say? Matthew 18. This whole concept is not just challenging. I would say it's impossible if our starting point is we've been wronged. If that's the starting point, you will never experience the power necessary to wish good for the wrongdoer. You'll never experience the power to, to actually forgive in a deep, meaningful way. But the starting point has to be not we've been wronged, but we've been forgiven. You see that in Jesus' story here. What does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, more on that in a second, was brought to him, 10,000 bags of gold. And since, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Okay, remember those two lines. We'll come back to it in a second. 10,000 bags of gold, and then the servant says, I will repay. I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. The word is actually compassion. Had compassion for him and canceled the debt. He didn't say, yeah, fine, pay me back. I'll put you on a payment plan. He cancels the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out in his newfound freedom, 
having received mercy and grace from the king. That servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Remember that, a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt, which makes no sense. You cannot make money to pay the debt if you are in prison. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master, the king, everything that that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In, In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is a very sobering story. This man owes the king, his master, 10,000 bags of gold. There's been lots of studies done on this from um, uh, researchers. 10,000 bags of gold. In other places, it's translated 10,000 talents. Without getting into all of the details, um, the general estimate of that in modern-day sort of um, currency, that's equivalent to, in 2023, about $3.5 billion. So this servant, oh, I mean, first of all, it's a ridiculous story. What servant is indebted $3.5 billion? Is there that sort of line of credit? I'm interested, actually. (laughs) You know, like go to Bank of America. I'm thinking about increasing my credit line. I'm thinking like billions, <laughs> any interest, you know. I'd like to buy a small country, so. <clears throat> Three and a half billion dollars, that's what he owes. And the king, the master, cancels the debt. It's so funny because the guy's like, please, please be patient with me. I will pay it back. No, you won't. Three and a half billion dollars, dude, you're going to pay that back? No, you won't. And the king knows this, like, canceled. Fair enough. You're free to go. And then it says that the same man goes out and begins to choke someone who owes him 100 silver coins. 100 silver coins is about 100 days wages. So in the Silicon Valley, based on average wage scale, that would be about forty dollars to $50,000. So let me show you this next chart, this next graphic. This man owes $3.5 billion. He receives forgiveness. And then, in return, he extends, not forgiveness, but vengeance to a man who owes him about 40K. That's the story. Does this make any sense? You're all saying no, but in reality, sure it does. It makes perfect sense. I do this all the time. I'll show you the next chart. I, as a follower of Jesus, I have received forgiveness for my sin. You know what my sin is? My sin is everything. It is the fact that I have been born into the reality of a broken, fallen world. And from a very young age, I contributed to that brokenness and fallenness. And even today in my early 40s, as a Christian professional who studies the scriptures, prays every day, loves God, loves his family, loves his church, I still contribute to the giant debt that is my sin on a daily basis. 
You know, it's crazy. If, if my sin were dollars and it was $3.5 billion, the reality is this is what's so daunting. The debt continues to grow. I didn't become a Christian in my early 20s, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm perfect. I never sin. My thoughts, my actions, my motivations, it's just I'm holy all the time. I don't even really walk. I kind of float, you know? Like, <laughs> none of that happened. I became a follower of Jesus, and then I just kept sinning. Not intentionally. My desires began to change. God began to reorient. My awareness of my own brokenness totally dramatically changed. My awareness of my need for God's grace and mercy in my life dramatically changed, but I continued to sin. So that 3.5 billion is like 4.8 billion or 6.2 billion. It's just, it might as well be like, Jesus might as well have said a gazillion dollars. It's just an unpayable debt. And yet I have received and continue to receive every single day the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But when others wrong me, I always have a choice. I can extend forgiveness as God has extended to me, or I can give in to the temptation I feel so strongly, which is to seek vengeance. And this is the story. Now, I, I want to make one thing clear. This visual that I'm showing you, it's a little bit deceiving because extending forgiveness instead of vengeance isn't about minimizing the harm. You see that, you know, it's like my sin is really huge and their sin is really small. And that's a little bit deceiving because some of us have been wronged and harmed in significant ways. In fact, September is Suicide Prevention Month. And this really matters for some of us in the room or some of us watching online. We have been so wronged that it's not even all that helpful to have a pastor say, what about your sin? And God's forgiven you. Can't you just forgive their sin? Because for some of us in the room, their sin, if it were visually accurate, would leap off of the screen. And I get that. First of all, just practically, I just want you to know, again, um, as we sort of are lingering together in Suicide Prevention Month, I just I want you to know if that is you, if there is something, some harm that has befallen you, some wrong that has been done to you that is just completely clouding everything about your life, I want you to know you are not alone and we want to come alongside you. We want to come alongside you, but we can't unless you say so, unless you tell us. So again, very practical. If you go to our website, westgatechurch.org slash care, just care, westgatechurch.org slash care. We've got um, counseling ministry, mentors, spiritual direction. We have very strong connections to Christian Counseling Center for those of us who may need actual, like, licensed therapists who can lean into us. We've got pastors who would love to just begin a conversation with you. So don't go it alone. Um, if you don't want to go to our website, just go to our table or come talk to me or one of our pastors after the service. We'd love to come alongside you. So along those lines, as we continue, let's just take a moment and let's talk about what forgiveness isn't, what Jesus is not saying to do. First, forgiveness is not emotional bypassing. Emotional bypassing are like exaggerated detachments. It's when we find ourselves saying things like, yeah, this, wrong, this bad thing happened, but like, you know what, dude, good vibes only, okay? I got no room for the bad energy, just whatever, you know? Um, it's, not, it's not like anger is the enemy, Okay, only good vibes. That's, that's emotional bypassing. That's not forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is not about minimizing the wrong and then trying to sweep it under the rug. Along those lines, what that also then means is that forgiveness is not forgetting. This whole idea of forgive and forget. Listen, we can try to forget, but here's the deal. Unprocessed hurt or pain is stored in our bodies as trauma. This is not, I'm not making this up. Um, Certainly, I'm not a licensed therapist or counselor, but I've done, you know, a bit of reading on this. And actually, this week, I reached out. We have actually lots of counselors and therapists in our church. I reached out to a few um, just to make sure I got their take on this. And they all agree. You cannot forget hurt because it gets stored in your body as trauma. In fact, the word trauma is a Greek word that means wound. So think about like getting a cut or a wound. You can look at that wound and be like, eh, just forget about it. But unless you address it and acknowledge it, not only does it fester, what can often happen? It can become a way bigger deal. So forgetting is not forgiving. Unprocessed trauma actually will cause your nervous system to begin living on high alert as a protective mechanism. This will happen whether you know it or not, by the way. Like, you don't really control this. If you do not process the hurt, unprocessed trauma pushes your nervous system, your physical body, to high alert to protect itself, and you will eventually find yourself becoming less trusting of the world and carrying tension as a means of readiness for the next potential threat. This actually gets carried in the emotional and memory centers of the brain. Forgetting is not really forgetting. It's just disassociating or numbing out. But it's held in your body. Lastly, forgiveness is not reconciliation. To forgive does not mean to have reconciled. Forgiveness is proactive, self-initiated, and is primarily, it's an interior discipline. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is partnership. It requires reciprocal activity and a desire from all parties involved to move toward connection through confession, repentance, and a commitment to union. So I'll show you this next image. This is critically important, you guys. Just because you forgive does not mean you have reconciled. But it is within your power to forgive, always. Forgiveness is what you do when someone has wronged you. It is to begin the journey of declaratively saying, I am going to release the power they have over me that fuels my desire for vengeance, that fuels anger and animosity. I am releasing that, and I don't hold this over them. Reconciliation demands that the wrongdoer begin taking steps toward you. We talk about this often, but this is really important. This, this, is, this is why it matters so much, particularly in cases of abuse. Like sometimes you have a friend, or maybe this has been you, where they are clearly in an abusive relationship. And they will tell you, they keep going back to the relationship, and they will tell you something like, oh, no, 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 he loves me. I, he just made a mistake, he loves me. No, 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 she, she loves me. I know she loves me. It's just she's having a hard time at work, or whatever. But time and time again, it becomes clear that the wrongdoer is just causing wrong, but has no desire for confession, repentance, and sacrificially participating in the work of reconnection in a healthy way. That's not reconciliation. The best thing we can do 
is to remove ourselves from situations like that, not just for our own safety, but to minimize the opportunity for the wrongdoer to continue harming themselves through the process of dehumanization as they do wrong. It's an act of mercy and generosity in many ways. This is why in the passage literally right before our passage today, which is often mapped onto church discipline, as it should be, but I think it goes broader than that, what does Jesus say? If your brother or sister sins, if they wrong you or others, go and point out their fault just between the two of you, if they listen to you. So there's no guarantee that they will. It's not within your power. It's not up to you. You don't need to control that. You only control you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Forgiveness is not emotional bypassing. It's not forgetting. And it isn't the same thing as reconciliation. Lewis Meads, again, when we forgive evil, we do not excuse it. We do not tolerate it. We do not smother it. We look the evil full in the face, call it what it is, let its horror shock and stun and enrage us, and only then do we forgive it. We forgive not because we feel it. We forgive because we're forgiven. It doesn't always feel good. To confront wrong does not typically feel good. Um, there's a person in my life who I think I am still struggling to forgive. And uh, I didn't even tell Jenny this because it was so alarming to me. Like I, my body was sort of like, I don't even know how to process this. This never happens, by the way. Jenny knows everything before, but she's going to hear this for the first time today. Uh, several months ago, I, was, I flew to Orange County for an event. And I land in the airport and I'm walking out to the rental car center. But the walk at the John Wayne Airport, you walk along the sort of arrivals pickup line. So like all the people picking other people up, pull up, and then you walk to go. And I'm walking to the rental car, and I'm thinking about just why I'm there and this event I'm going to be a part of. And then a car pulls up, and like I'm like as close as Mike and I are right here. I'm su super close, and I look into the car, and it's the guy I have struggled to forgive for two decades. And so I walk around to the driver's side, and I embrace him. No, I'm just kidding. None of that happened. I did not do that. I did. You were like, oh, my gosh, so beautiful. No. I saw him, and I just kept walking. And then you know what happened? I was just shook the whole day. Just wrestling with my own sort of like, oh, my gosh. I have not even come close to processing this. I've just tried to sweep it, emotional bypassing. My life is great, who cares? Forgetting, it's been like decades. Eh, I don't even remember. My body remembers. We certainly aren't reconciled. And then that day, I started doing the work. And I am not even close, you guys. But I started doing the work. What does it look like for me to forgive this person? I don't feel it. I tell you right now, I do not feel it. Like even right now as I tell the story, there's nothing in me that's like, yeah, real warmth in my heart. I, I don't. I'm still processing. I'm still entangled in the mess emotionally and otherwise. 
But we can forgive before we feel it. We can continue forgiving even as we continue not feeling it. God did. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act together and we were no longer sinners, Christ died for us. Not we were sinners, but then remember that time we apologized? Then Christ was like, okay, I'll die for you. No, while we were still sinners. Forgiven people are the only people on the planet who are empowered to really forgive. This is why Christians have to embody and express the Jesus ethic of forgiveness in a way that shocks the world. If you forgive the way Christ forgives, the world will look at you and think to themselves, you're insane. That's the bar. Can you forgive in such a way that those far from God look at you and say, first, you're a lunatic, but slowly over time, you seem so free. How did you get there? Henry Nouwen, powerful words. He said, a forgiven person forgives. This lifelong struggle lies at the heart of the Christian life. It's not going to be easy. It will feel like struggle. I'm going to invite Mark and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond together. But I want to give us just a few moments. We'll bring the lights down and you can keep your eyes open. And first, I want you to take a moment right now. Everybody in the room, I'd like you to take a moment, just maybe 30 seconds or so, and I'd like you to think about your worst moments, your most sinful broken sin, um, brokenness, uh, your worst moments, and at the same time, I want you to think about the immensity of your wrongdoing and sin. I know that's not fun, but just think about it. And at the same time, I would like for you to think about the immensity of God's mercy and love, which offers you forgiveness. Let's do that now. Now, I'd like for all of us to think about someone who's wronged you, who God might be asking you to begin forgiving today. And I want you, you don't have to start feeling like you're forgiving them. I just want you for a moment to think about the immensity of God's mercy and love for them. Let's pray together. God of mercy and grace in Christ who endured death for us, you who forgave the unpayable debt of our sin, we thank you that your forgiveness is absolute. We ask that you would grant us the strength to forgive as you have forgiven us. Destroy in us any persistent longing for malice or for vengeance 
Let each wrongdoing end as a closing chapter, that we may continue on the road toward healing, peace, and righteousness. In the gracious and merciful name of Christ our Lord, whose life offers us forgiveness today. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.